Well, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We've been working through this uh, slowly, but it's important that we do because it's describing practically how we ought to live. So we're going to begin in verse 5 again, and we will read through verse uh, 14. We won't get all the way through that today, but let's look at that section together. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse uh, 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine upon you. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and hearts to be able to not only understand this text, but apply it to our lives. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, in light of verse 8, the fact that we were darkness and now we're light, we looked at how with this light that we have within us, this understanding we've been given in the new birth, under, uh, the fact that we have the mind of Christ, Paul is asking us to discern two things here. Discern the end of the sons of disobedience on the one hand, and to try to discern what pleases God. And then we're to walk as children of light, as beloved children of light. We're to walk in love. And we only got through the first part last week of trying to discern their end. And we've just talked about it. I was just going to pick up with the second point, but I realized we talked about how a non-believer has the wrath of God remaining upon them until they trust Christ. And how in Christ we don't, but we really didn't spend much time thinking about the wrath of God, which I think would be helpful if this is what we're to discern, if this is going to help us live 
lives that are pleasing to the Lord. If we're to walk in love, God wants us to use our light to discern the end. Not just the good of the light, but to discern the mercy of God. What have we been saved from? And so we'll do that. Uh, by way of introduction, I want to read from Hebrews eleven twenty four. It's talking about Moses' faith. Hebrews eleven twenty four says, and this is an example of, of Moses having light. Moses, in a sense, God gave him understanding so that he could do what almost no one would do. Here's what it says. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, that's very odd. There's a lot of benefits being the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather, so he picked something else. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. So he chose to be mistreated. With the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So if you, if you look at the structure of this, he chose to be mistreated rather than have, rather than to enjoy pleasure. That's what he chose. But he chose it because he had light. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God. Yes, mistreated, but he's with the people of God. Rather than to enjoy fleeting pleasures of sin. Sin provides pleasure. It does. You wouldn't go after it if it didn't give you some, at least temporary pleasure, but it's fleeting. And because Moses had light, because he could look at the scenario, he said, I'm going to take what's hard now, being mistreated with the people of God, rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Verse 26 says, he considered the reproach of Christ. Isn't that interesting? Christ hadn't shown up yet in Moses' day. But the writer of Hebrews says, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth, more value than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He had sight. He had light. Yes, this king's here, but he's been watching this king get the wrath of God. And he saw the invisible God, Yahweh, 
that gave him courage to endure in the ministry that God had given him. He's just an example of someone who was able to discern the end of those who are not with the people of God. And so we read in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Because of things like sexual immorality, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, the sons of rebellion. And Paul wants the believer to discern the end. He wants us to understand and imagine the wrath of God that comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, to do that, we have to think about hell. Hell, we simply say often, is separation from God relationally separated. We know it's not technically totally true because those in hell are never, they can never quite get away from God because his wrath is forever present with them. It's separation from all the blessings of the Lord. When it says the face of Christ will shine upon you, it means that God, when God's face is upon you, you have his blessings. You have his care. You have the inheritance of Christ. But hell is separation from all the goodness of God, separation from a relationship with him, and separation from all the good creation that he's given us by his grace that we take for granted. We've talked about this before. When was the last time you thanked God for ground underneath your feet? You see, when you're standing on something, you feel stable. It's a stabilizing effect to be able to sit in a chair, lie in a bed. And yet, hell is described as a bottomless pit. No creational goodness to grab onto. Separated from all the goodness and blessing of God. That's what the sons of disobedience have waiting for them. Let me just read some text. You just have to hear it. So 1 Thessalonians 1.9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. To be a believer and to know that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come, we need to meditate on what that wrath is that we're being delivered from. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and then verse 10 says, who died for us so that whether we are, are awake or asleep, 
we might live with him. Which means if you're sick, if you have terminal illness and you're dying and you only have a week left, Paul says, God hasn't destined you for wrath. Whether you're awake or asleep, that is not what's destined for you. And then he says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And I just want to read a couple sections of, uh, from Revelation 6 and Revelation 14, where we get a picture of God's wrath being poured out on his enemies. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb, for the day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? The most mighty ones, the ones with the most courage, are begging for mercy. You know it's a bad day when you are asking and praying for the mountain to fall on you. That's better than facing the wrath of the Lamb. In Revelation 14, as three angels are sent out, the first one to preach the gospel, the second one is to declare the doom of, of Babylon, and the third one, he says, another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or his hand, he also would, will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He'll be tormented with fire and sulfur. He'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes for a thousand years. That's not what it says. It says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest. No rest. Can you imagine? You know, those who are depressed often just want to sleep. They just want to go, become unconscious. They want to escape the realities that are in front of them often. But it will not be so for those who have the wrath of God poured out on them. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, whoever receives the mark of his name. Verse 11, doesn't this, isn't this practical? 
Here is a call for endurance of the saints. If there's ever a call for enduring with Christ, not walking away from Christ, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commands of God and their faith in Jesus. This is opposite of sons of disobedience. These are those saying, what is the will of God? I want to do the will of God. I want to live for Christ. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. In Psalm 2.2, 2, this is a messianic psalm pointing us to Christ. In verse 2, it says, The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. They want, they want to be rid of the authority of God. And then it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision and then verse 5 if you read it with eyes of faith if you read it with hearts that believe then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury what does the wrath of the perfect holy God who dwells in unapproachable light that exudes perfect justice. He loves good things to a degree we can't imagine, and he hates evil to a degree we can't imagine. And he'll terrify them in his fury. And with the light that you have, Christian, you're supposed to consider the mercy of God that you've been given. That even if you were dying of terminal illness, you have not been destined for wrath, but an eternal inheritance with the people of God forever in the presence of God with all of his good creation beyond what we can imagine. I was, where do you look for an illustration? The, most of you know I'm a storm enthusiast. I like following storm chasers as they are live feeding their, their chase all over the country. And Storm chasers are always waiting for that epic moment where they get to be close to the power of God in this, in this amazing storm. And in one sense, it's beautiful. In the next sense, it can kill you. But then what happens when, you, when they succeed? You know, Sean Casey built the vehicle like a tank so that he could drive right in the middle of a tornado. And... 
and get video footage. He wanted to make a movie. He did make a movie. And he had gotten close a lot of times. He had been on the outskirts of the rotation. But then finally, he sets his car. The anchors go into the ground. The, uh, the slats come down so no air can get underneath. Finally, he put himself right in front of an F4 tornado. Wasn't even an F5. It's in the middle of an open field, so there's no, no major debris to hit him. And the cameras are rolling, and the screen starts to get darker, and then all of a sudden, all you see is pitch black in the most horrible noise you've ever heard. It's like, and you start hearing things hitting the side of the car, breaking the bulletproof glass on the windows, and the video's pitch black. You can go watch it on YouTube. It's pitch black, hideous sound. Their door actually flew open during it. And, you, and, I, and I think, the whole goal is to catch this on camera. But once you're in it, guess what? They don't want to drive in F4s anymore. They kind of want to stay out with the F2s and get the good footage. You don't want to be right in the middle of the fullness of the wrath of God. You know, the tempest is a whirling storm. That's, that's one way the Bible describes God's fury. And our text tells us, don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. See, this can help with sexual temptation, can it? What is in store for those who give themselves over to sexual sin? What is in store? God has given you minds, Christians, to think about it and understand it and know it, and it will help you. Endure, realizing that it does not produce its fleeting pleasure. It brings heartache. Do you realize that your sin, whether it's sexual sin or any sin, hurts beyond you? It goes collateral. Because sin is always selfish. You're made to give your life away. And whenever you're partaking in sin, you're harming so much more than just yourself. And is that why God has given you new life in Christ? That's why he says, walk as beloved children. Those who are light need to consider rightly the reality of, uh, of things in this world. Sons of disobedience and those who have Christ as their Lord. And so in verse 7, he says, therefore, don't become partners with them. That word partners means to share in possession of something. Don't share in their thinking. Don't share in 
what they love. Don't put the same input into your mind as they put in their minds. Don't share in their same actions because their actions are always tied to their affections. Why would would we as believers partner with the sons of disobedience? This doesn't mean you don't work with non-believers. Of course you will. You'd have to leave this world to just avoid being around non-believers. That's not the point. The point is this. Why would you partner with them? Why would you join your affections with their affections? Why would you join your actions with their actions? When, in fact, you have light, and as we're going to see in a few verses, your life is actually supposed to expose the fleeting pleasures that they're after. It's not going to last. The wrath of God is going to come upon it. The non-believers around us, because of our life, ought to understand their end. We ought to be like light that shines in. We ought to have affections that are different so that they say what makes them different. Then we get to verse 8 where it says, For at one time you were darkness. That's a statement of identity. Other places, you know, know, we're not supposed to walk in darkness. Here it says, for at one time you were darkness. You didn't know. You were spiritually dead. You had no spiritual light. You didn't understand. You maybe understood intellectually, but you didn't love Christ. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You didn't get that by becoming smart enough, reading just the right book. You are light in the Lord. It's a gift of God. When God said, let there be light in the beginning, and there was light, that's the way he's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's from the Lord, and that's who we are. He doesn't say, in in this text, walk in the light. He says, you are light. So he's saying, He's he's going to say in a moment, walk in the light, but his reason is because you are light. That is your identity. Just as he said, as beloved children, walk in love. So you don't walk in love to become a beloved child, but because God has loved you so that your identity, like John says, I'm the one who Jesus loved. How else does he identify himself? He loved me. So as beloved children, walk in love. And then he he says this, walk as children of light. The word walk, peripateo, is a present active imperative. The idea is this is your... uh, This is the way you live. Live as children of the light or behave in such a way continually as children of the light. 
Christians sin. That's true. Uh, but Christians don't walk or behave in the darkness as, as uh, though they know nothing of Christ, know nothing of God, have no light in and of themselves. That's how it was before you came to Christ. The battle with sin doesn't begin till you become a Christian. Someone says, am I a Christian? I'm fighting with sin. Well, the, the battle begins as light exposes sin in your life. And as it's exposed, you're able to turn from finding hope in your sin. You realize it's fleeting pleasures. The wrath of God is in store for those who have lives that are defined like this and then turn to Christ. That's, that's uh, the grace God has given us. So he's called us to walk as children of light. And then he says this, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try growing fruit with no light. It's not going to work. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true. Goodness, righteousness, truth, it's the same basis, uh, all those three words. If we were going to say, so what, what is the fruit of light? What does it look like? All that is good. Goodness is like the essence of something, a positive essence of something. Goodness uh, describes its positive moral qualities. And then he says, what is right? We ask the question, what is righteousness? It's the act of doing what God requires. Righteousness is the act of fulfilling what God has uh, called us to, walking in a way that he's called us to walk. So our lives to ha are, are to have a certain quality about it. And then there's supposed to be action that walks in righteousness. And then thirdly, it needs to be according to the standard, truth. Truth is a standard. Truth is the reality. Truth reveals, it's like a diagnostic, it's corrective, it's restorative, it's life-giving. Wherever the fruit of light is, truth will be there. It'll never be absent of truth. And so we're to walk as children of light. We're to understand what spiritual fruit looks like. And then verse 10 says, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We, we, right at the end of the sermon last week, we talked about this a little bit. We are not supposed to think of our new birth as though you have a robot that all of a sudden gets power to it, becomes alive, and then knows everything. Just has it all figured out. You know, well, the robot has light. Yeah, well, the way we're born again is we're given light, we're given understanding, we're given a new mind, we're given a new heart, but then we're supposed to live out of that new heart. We're supposed to think with that new mind. Don't you love how he says it? Look at how he says it. 
and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This is the Christian life. All your, the whole rest of your life, you say, what's my purpose? So you're not trying to earn your salvation. That comes by pure grace. But when you've been loved by God, when you've been saved by the wrath of God because of Christ's substitutionary uh, taking your place on the cross, and now you've been given new life, what, what are you to do? You're supposed to ask yourself the question, all day and every day, what would please the Lord? Try to discern with the light you have, what would please the Lord? You know, you think of what would Jesus do? Well, that's good to know what he would do. But God tells us to ask ourselves, what would please the Lord in this situation? What does God have for me here? And I can tell you what God has for you is in opposition to your own pride and your own selfishness so that you might say, well, this life is going to be a life that feels like I'm dying on a cross. Well, that's what Jesus said, didn't he? So if you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Ask the question, what would please the Lord? So we all ought to do this. This is how Paul lived. Um, the, the, the idea is, as children of light, light brings transparency, right? Proverbs 28, 13. So here's, here's how I'll use this in the counseling room. When I feel like there's more to confess, maybe there's not total truth, being told in the room. And the reason why total truth isn't told is because there's a sense of trying to save yourself from the reality of what's really true. Because if they found out the truth, there's a sense of I would die as they find out my sin. And so what it, I try to do is paint a picture of actually reality. The person hiding sin is actually in a prison. It's a prison where they don't get to live in the light. In fact, they got to spend their life covering their tracks and hiding whatever secret sin they have. And their conscience is always checked, so they only have two choices. You can uh, fight against your conscience and risk searing it. Or you just walk around in the misery of the guilt. And I'll take them to Proverbs 28, 13 that says this. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. So there, there's some here today doing that. And actually, there's some here today not doing that. How do I know that? I'm going to show you in a minute. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. <laughs> mercy is the word that describes us not getting what we deserve. 
You, do you see the freedom that a person is let go of when they're able to, with light, confess what they've done, confess hopelessness in and of themselves, and look at the mercy of God in Christ? Let that be their hope. Their conscience, they'll be able to sleep at night. So we're to try to discern what pleases the Lord. F.F. Bruce says, the followers of Christ will naturally desire to do what pleases him. He says this was Paul's own ambition. He cherished it. Paul cherished the same ambition for his Christian friends. Let's just look at a couple verses here as we bring this to a close. 1 Corinthians 4.3. This is a helpful text. 1 Corinthians 4, 3. He says, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by human court. Paul says, if you judge me by human court, that's a very small thing. And then he tells us a fact about his life. He says, in fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself. Paul's saying, I'm not living in darkness. I don't have a known sin that I'm not fighting, that the light of the gospel hasn't uh, shown into and, and been able to speak into. There's not a hard heart here trying to hold away the light of God as it exposes the apostle Paul. But he says this, he says, I in fact do not judge myself for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted for it is the Lord who judges me. Paul wants us to live the same sort of life. Paul's not saying he's sinless. Paul's going to give an account for how he used the spiritual gifts God gave him for how he used the light that God gave him. He'll give an account. There will be stewards getting into heaven, saved people, some experiencing loss as their work is tested, a squandering of spiritual gifts, a squandering of their money and their life used for selfish reasons. Paul says, I'll stand before God, but as far as I know, the light of Christ can shine in here. He's already put on paper that he's the chief of sinners. 2 Corinthians 5.9, he says it this way. He says, so whether we are home or away, meaning whether I'm in my body and alive or away, dead, and with Christ, he says, whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please him. That, that's the purpose of his life. <laughs> when I'm dead, guess what I'm going to want to do? I'm going to be pleasing him. And if he leaves me in the body, what does he want to do? He wants to please Christ. That's the aim of his life. I love that picture. What's the purpose of your life? An aim with a rifle is just a you're aiming at a very small spot. 
You know where you want to hit, and the Christian should know where they want to hit. We should want to please the Lord. Someone might say, well, how do I know how to please the Lord? Most of you are familiar with Romans 12. Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. There's that word again. Not getting wrath. Not getting wrath. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So not for selfish sexual sin. As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, as is your spiritual worship. And then he says, don't be conformed to this world. Now here's how you do it. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So you have a mind that's alive, that has light. Where are you going to look to renew it more and more and more. You're going to go to Scripture, right? But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So the way you're not conformed to the world is there's mind work to do. There's faith work to do. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. Well, isn't that what he's saying in our text? That's the purpose of the Christian life, to discern what the will of God is, to be renewed in our minds, to see the wrath of God falling on the sons of disobedience on the one hand. You know, the, the picture that I, I think is like Luke 11 or 12, you, you got the picture of those standing at the door of the banquet, the party, and you have, he's telling it because there's Jews that think they're getting in. But when they get there, the master has shut the door and they're knocking at the door and they're saying, let me in, let me in. Essentially, we ate, we ate with you. We, we went to your church. We maybe even had communion. We, we, we need to be a part of this party. And he says, I tell you the truth, I never knew you. And then they're thrown in outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. They must be so angry to think they were getting in. And then they're not. And yet Moses had eyes to see. It's better to be mistreated with the people of God than to have these temporary. What the Pharisees had? They had the praise of man right in the here and now. They fasted. They showed it. They wanted their glory now and in the immediate. But it is hard to discern the will of the Lord for several reasons. Your flesh is going to tell you the opposite. It's at war with the Spirit. Yes, the Spirit of God lives inside you. Your flesh will tell you lies. And secondly, the world will tell you lies. And then the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself will. Because here's how Paul describes the devil. In 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, 14, Satan disguises himself as what? An angel of light. He's pretty sneaky, isn't he? Because what's the Christian saying? I need to walk as children of the light. And the devil says, sweet, if I can make darkness look like light, I got him. He disguises himself as an angel of light. 
So it is no surprise if his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. They can't hide it. You can't hide it. The human heart is going to expose them no matter if they looks like light. The best false teacher, just go talk to his wife. Go talk to his children. Get behind the closed doors. From out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So I want to end. You never believe a Baptist preacher when he's ending, right? For the second time. With, in Luke 15, he says this. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors. So a party is starting. A, a party is starting. He calls his friends and he calls his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, hear this. I know we're at the end. Hear this. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. If you want to do what pleases God, repent of any known sin and the party begins. God rejoices when a sinner admits his sin, calls it for what it is, says he deserves what God says he deserves in light of that sin and turns to Christ. So he says, don't be partners with them. That would be opposite of pleasing the Lord. But rather try and discern what pleases God, what pleases God, turning from darkness and walking in the light. Though we stand apart from Christ, justly condemned before a holy and righteous judge, the one who's created all things and sustains all things. And in that sin, we have no moves that we can make. Mankind can do nothing to save himself. No hope to change their situation. God has acted on behalf of sinners. That action can only be described as one of pure grace, pure mercy, and shockingly, pure justice. God, Christ is taking on the justice for our sins. So Jesus took on human flesh. He lived a perfect life under the law of God. A life you and I could never and have never lived. He bore our sins on the, cry, uh, on the cross he bore the life that we lived in 
and is, takes the payment for what we deserve. And he died for our life. He literally, in the words of Paul Washer, drank your hell for your life. And not only that, for those who put their hope and trust in Christ, you get rewarded for his life that he lived perfectly under the law of God. So that whoever turns from finding hope in their sins and turns to Christ can be forgiven and live a life of hope in joyful expectation of receiving the inheritance of a son of God. This action that God took on our behalf and for his own glory, that he might be the only savior of man, is summed up and described by one word. Agape. Self-sacrificial love. He suffers, you benefit. I benefit. This love has rescued you and me from the domain of darkness, from your own spiritual darkness, and made you light. So discern the end of the sons of disobedience. Know what you've been saved from and try to discern what pleases the Lord. Walk in light as beloved children of light. As Paul says earlier, we are rooted and grounded in love. Love defines how we got to this place of, of, of pure grace. 